Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 6th of October, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. Delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Uh, we're going to give a, I'm going to start off with a, a public a, a warning uh, of what's coming. But look, I'm sorry. Uh, it wasn't my decision, but Boris is coming on in a second. Uh, and, uh, well, uh, he's saying that uh, he's going to have the guts to change the UK. The country is towards moving towards a high-wage, high-skill, high-productivity economy. Not quite sure how it's going to do that, but okay. Uh, everyone can take pride in their work and quality of their work is what he's uh, aiming for. It's all full of rhetoric like level up. Uh, we're not going back to the same old broken model of low wages, low growth, low skills, low productivity, all of it enabled and assisted by uncontrolled immigration. Um, so we, the system's going to work to allow people of talent to come to this country, but not to use immigration as an excuse for failure to invest in people in skills and their equipment and the machinery that they need to do their jobs. Um, so, and then he was talking about uh, uh, lots of buses uh, and uh, buses using hydrogen and stuff like that. Well, okay, we'll come on to that in a second. But uh, look, we've got a little bit of, of video of Boris here. Because the hypocrisy uh, was just dribbling out of his mouth today, Brian. It was incredible. Well, I think we let the viewers uh, have a look at what uh, what's contained in this clip, and then we can, we can discuss it. Yes. So let me come now to the punchline of my sermon on the vaccine. It was not. It was not the government that made the wonder drug. It wasn't brewed in the alembics of the Department of Health. It was. And of course it was Oxford University, but it was the private sector that made it possible. Behind those vaccines are companies and shareholders and, yes, bankers. You need deep pools of liquidity that are to be found in the city of London. It was capitalism that ensured we had a vaccine in less than, than a year. So it was capitalism that did it. So apologies to anybody that's just had their lunch. But uh, let's just remind ourselves of... Um the exact situation of what was to do with capitalism was this, because if we go back to August or so last year, uh, the question we were asking on the column was approval. Who needs approval and why were we asking it? Because, of course, AstraZeneca had been done a deal uh, and uh, this came out in a freedom of freedom information answer. Uh, so AstraZeneca struck a deal for the manufacture of the Oxford vaccine. They're starting manufacturing now, even ahead of approval, uh, so we can build up uh, a stockpile uh, and so on. So they, this is before clinical approval. Now, of course, they never got full clinical approval. Uh, they, uh, they got emergency use approval as they did in other countries. Uh, but the key point here is that this is not a capitalism and a capitalist decision. This was a government decision to pay for and guarantee the uh, funding of the vaccines before there was any prospect of approval, apparently. So the question we're asking at the time was, does that mean that the approval is guaranteed? Or does that mean that they're going to get paid no matter whether approval is given or not? Well, it turned out at the end of the day, it was because effectively approval was guaranteed. Um, and so they went ahead and, uh, and produced the vaccines. This applied to the other vaccine manufacturers as well. Uh, and of course, uh, we shouldn't forget that uh, it's not just it wasn't just the, uh, uh, the, the uh, this deal that, that counted. It was also the it was also the fact that they were given immunity from uh, any kind of uh, civil prosecution afterwards, should there be any adverse events or uh, reactions. Uh, so I'm not sure uh, how much capitalism had to do with the decision for these companies to, to move ahead the way they did. 
A lot of questions, Mike. What, what's in my mind is, is of course, that at the same time as Boris is talking at the conference, we've got all the information coming out about the funding of the Tory party, uh, major articles with suggestions of corruption and dirty deals in, in uh, offshore companies. Um, so he's praising, who's he praising? Is he praising those sorts of companies or is he uh, praising credible companies. The trouble with Boris is you don't know actually who he is, why he's in the position of power he's in, and who's supporting him when he's praising the private sector. Uh, indeed. Um, so let's just uh, move on to this then. This is the all-party parliamentary group for coronavirus, and they uh, have been, well, first of all, this is uh, chaired by uh, Leila Moran MP. It's an all-party parliamentary group, so it's not really anything to do with Parliament. It's uh, it's cross-party and so on. Um, this is all about ensuring that the lessons are learned from the UK's handling of the coronavirus outbreak so far uh, that the government's uh, that the UK's response and preparedness may be improved for the future and so on. Uh, this is what they're saying. Uh, perhaps a whitewash is more appropriate. But anyway, uh, they uh, were holding an event yesterday all about uh, the government's winter plan. This is, of course, Plan A versus Plan B, or Plan 9, as we like to call it. Um, and uh, they were looking at international comparisons. And who did they have on? Uh, but none other than Professor Neil Ferguson. Uh, and there he is. Uh, so he was giving a presentation, by, or at least answering questions via Zoom, uh, and saying that uh, government ministers would have to resort to Plan B, uh, which involves uh, vaccine passports and uh, lockdown and all this kind of stuff, uh, if daily admissions to NHS hospitals in England uh, reach 1,200, uh, and just to put that in perspective, in January, it was over uh, 4,000 um, in a month. So uh, speaking at this uh, event, he said that uh, the country was currently recording around six th sorry, 600 COVID admissions per day. Sorry, that's per day. So he's saying that if that doubles, that 600 COVID admissions per day doubles, then uh, really Boris is going to have to go to plan B as quickly as possible. Uh, and uh, of course, that takes us to vaccine passports, but we'll come on to that in one second as well. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, now, Sweden, some news from Sweden. Here it is in Swedish. Maybe Alex can help with this, but uh, I can maybe help with it as well. Let's do a quick translation. Uh, the use of Moderna's vaccine against COVID-19 is paused for anyone born in 1991 and later. So this is from the, uh, the Public Health Agency of Sweden. Um, and they say that they have a national responsibility for public health issues and they work to ensure good public health. Um, so they've decided to, to suspend the use of Moderna's uh, vaccine Spikevax uh, for everyone born in 1991 and later for precautionary reasons. And of course, what's this got to do with? Well, it's got to do with heart problems. Uh, and as we were mentioning on, on uh, Monday's programme, uh, the BBC highlighting once again on Monday that uh, 80,000 uh, young people in UK alone uh, with undiagnosed heart problems. And so the question that we were asking on Monday was, uh, what would the potential effect of, vac of a mass vaccination uh, program be on those people? Um, so the Swedish here saying that new pre preliminary analysis from uh, the Swedish and Nordic data sources indicate that the connection is especially clear when it comes to Moderna's vaccine spike vax, especially after the second dose. And the, incre the increase in risk is seen within four weeks after the vaccination. And, but mainly within the first two weeks. So people born 1991 and later who've received a dose of Moderna's vaccine will not be offered a second dose uh, at present. And discussions are ongoing about the best solution for that group. Uh, and in total, there are 81,000 people in that group in Sweden. 
uh, and those who have been vaccinated recently with their first or second dose of Moderna's vaccine do not have to worry about the risk because it's very small, uh, but it's good to know what symptoms uh, that people need to be vigilant about. And uh, that article goes on to explain that. So, uh, so there you go. Uh, another day, another delay or pause in vaccination rollouts and for various adverse reaction related reasons. Yeah, more people talking about um, vaccine adverse reactions, but of course in UK, uh, the government acts as if there are no vaccine adverse reactions at all, despite the fact that the um, MHRA is collecting data and publishing it under the yellow card adverse effects uh, scheme. But then we say, well, we've collected millions of reports of problems, we've got thousands of deaths, uh, but we're not going to talk about it because it doesn't exist. Um, maybe we would say welcome Alex onto the programme. Have you any thoughts so far, Alex? Well, one of the things that we notice with the corruption around the governing Conservative Party, and it has been just the same in periods when the Labour Party or as part of a coalition, the Liberal Democrat Party have been in power in the United Kingdom, is that uh, donors to that governing party get what is colloquially known as gongs, knighthoods and peerages. And I just see in the live chat that one of our long-term viewers has made the entirely understandable comment. It seems to me that the monarchy is truly evil, handing out honours to such people. Well, later in the news, we will see uh, a very informed viewer's comment in the form of an email explaining what's happened. Essentially, from the top down, the system has been hijacked. And uh, very, there is very little public uh, factor left in the way we're governed. The reason why this is in lockstep around the uh, the whole of Europe uh, is because there is a, a model which excludes any kind of heads of state or even parliaments in the model. Uh, Norway, of course, has now found a problem with Moderna. Other slightly more independent-minded countries, even within the EU, have taken similar measures of late. Slovenia has banned, as far as I can understand, uh, for all ages, the Johnson & Johnson alias Janssen uh, jab because of one young adult's death. So they take their public health responsibilities rather more seriously than, than the core Western European countries, whether or not they're in the EU. OK, thank you for that. And just to clarify, that that was Sweden, uh, not Norway, but uh, uh, point taken. So let's come on to uh, Wales and the government of Wales, as we reported on Monday, uh, were voting yes, uh, yesterday on the issue of vaccine passports. Um, so Big Brother Watch on Monday was uh, pushing out this tweet, or at least at the weekend, pushing out this tweet, uh, encouraging people to get involved in that. There were a number of, uh, of campaigners uh, who appeared uh, to protest outside the uh, Senate. Uh, but Alex, it didn't go so well. Uh, just uh, give us your understanding of what happened. There are 60 assembly members who were due to have been in the vote. It was taken in plenary. And uh, of course, we focus from time to time on the most outrageous devolved assembly, which is the Scottish Parliament uh, or the We Pretendi Parliament. It tends to attract all the attention uh, because, for example, Alex Salmond has had the problem with the Linda Fabiani committee and even the convener or speaker of parliament being notoriously partisan. We played a clip of another example of that last week in extra time regarding Nicola Sturgeon on auto cue not being taken to task. But behind the scenes, the Senedd or unicameral devolved Welsh legislature is 
just as uh, as low quality in its uh, in the means of its uh, presiding officer and other officers and the way it's run. So uh, to the delight, obviously, of the globalist Welsh uh, government, as it now calls itself, it wasn't given that title in legislation, but it's appropriated it itself. Um, the Welsh government has washed its hands of this this misvote. Uh, it was a matter for the, for the Senate, the Welsh Parliament itself, to decide how to vote. And uh, there are supposed to have been 60 who joined. Uh, Mr. Uh, number 60 is a member of the opposition Conservative Party in the Welsh uh, Assembly. And uh, he could not get onto Zoom, uh, a problem which is well known to me from uh, being uh, these days a remote interpreter. So you cannot blame him for that. But the blame was put on him. And he tried to intervene and uh, tell the lady in the chair uh, that he was still trying to get into Zoom in order to find his voting button. And his was the decisive vote in this matter. Uh, but we'll see what happened at that moment. No, 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 Darren Miller, that is, we are holding the vote. So that was it, Alex. Basically, as I, as I uh, discovered, the, the, the vote ended up being 28 to 27 in favour of uh, rolling out vaccine passports in, in Wales. Uh, his would have been the decisive vote. He was a Conservative Party MP and he had intended to vote against vaccine passports being rolled out. So that would have uh, left a tide, which meant it couldn't progress. Um, but uh, he couldn't get on to Zoom. Uh, and so, and the problem, of course, here is that uh, uh, they, uh, they're calling it uh, hybrid working. So they've got some people in the Senate itself, other people on Zoom, and somehow they're managing a vote on that. Um, so here is... Uh, uh, one uh, commentator saying hybrid Zenith uh, Zenith works, uh, sorry, hybrid Zenith working works. The electronic voting system works, but unless there's a very, very good reason and or with advance approval, uh, I think you should be able to vote only from your offices at home or in the Zenith or uh, at your constituency office, i.e. not at party conference. So the claim here, Alex, seems to be uh, that this particular MS was in at the Tory party conference, uh, listening to the Home Secretary or something like that, was trying to uh, register his vote from there, uh, couldn't get onto Zoom, and that basically that's not the fault of the uh, of the IT systems or of, of the Senate, and they shouldn't uh, be uh, uh, suspending a vote on that basis because he wasn't in the right place at the right time. Uh, that's Surely this goes beyond an issue of this is a, a democratic issue. And, and uh, if, you can, if people that are entitled to vote aren't entitled, aren't able to vote for technical reasons, uh, then the vote should be delayed. Well, not knowing how old Rinap Yorworth is, I wouldn't know uh, whether he has a clear recollection of the pre-1999 era when we had uh, a, a centralised uh, unitary state with a single parliament at Westminster, with the exception of Northern Ireland, which at times has had its own government. But it's a very strict, to this day, uh, and, and at least up to COVID, a strict uh, old-fashioned division system. The division is literally that people walk through the lobbies and are seen uh, by name as well to vote in a certain way. And that's a, a public matter of record, which it isn't, or at least it can be fiddled with electronically. Uh, if you have even in-chamber electronic voting, as most countries do these days, uh, it was a decisive break in many ways. The, the, the uh, continental-style 
horseshoe seating, so supposedly less confrontational, and uh, the proportional part, uh, representation mixed system of, of, elect, of returning people to office in the devolved assemblies. All of these arrangements in under New Labour were decisive breaks with the Westminster model. And one by one, we see the problems coming to the surface. Uh, the old model, uh, I know that the Speaker of the House of Commons has often had dirt flung at him for being partisan in choosing what gets uh, speaking and debating time. But the old model is that you are there in person. Westminster was uh, very uh, prided itself on this. And there was very little uh, opportunity, as there still isn't in Britain because we, we uh, in the constituencies because we vote on paper. Uh, there was very little opportunity to noble people. The more electronic you go, the more of these moral dilemmas and quandaries you get. Uh, if you simply say voting is in person only, uh, then the AM in question would have had a solid reason not to have been in Brighton. Uh, but this is a deliberate grey zone, of course, being introduced. Yes, indeed. And I, I think we also ought to add is that um, we've got a result here, which I think a lot of people are extremely concerned about because they don't want a passport system. But if you're watching from inside Wales, you're part, you're Welsh, you're part of the Welsh community, uh, and this concerns you, then you need to do something about it. You need to write that letter, and you need to pick up the phone, you need to be sending the email, you should be talking to your local MP, because if you accept it, you are simply accepting that there's now no democracy left in that Senate. Um, and then uh, what happened afterwards? Well, we started seeing tweets like this, breaking members of the Welsh Parliament have been told not to leave after protesters campaigning against COVID passes blocked exits around parliamentary estates. So uh, again, we're building up this narrative that these very dangerous protesters were out there. They were a risk to human life and limb, and therefore members of the Welsh Parliament were not able to leave. Uh, this is uh, a really dangerous narrative that's attempting to be built uh, up. So here's uh, uh, Tom Gifford, MS, saying, uh, surreal evening at the, in the Senate. Uh, had to sorry, and to compound matters, we can't get out of the building at the moment because of the protests outside. Uh, stuck in my office as protesters, shout shame on you, said uh, Samuel Kurtz, and blocking us from leaving. To be fair, I'm as frustrated as them. So at least he's not, uh, you know, suggesting that there's any risk involved there. But Alex, this, this narrative that's being built that anybody protesting is dangerous, that they uh, are potentially going to, you know, what are they going to do? Are they going to attempt to kill people leaving uh, the, the Welsh Parliament? I don't think it's got to that point just yet. But, uh, you know, this narrative nonetheless is uh, pretty dangerous. I can very much foresee, God forbid, that a couple of parliamentarians will have uh, at least an attempt on their lives in such settings in various countries because it would be so convenient to the narrative. And we have seen that the powers that be are prepared to do that around the world. So I do hope they're all safe coming out of the Senate and in, in subsequent votes. But you see the underlying sentiment of the Assembly members or MSs as they now call themselves, members of the Senate, um, like the last example on screen. It's basically, uh, we're as frustrated as you are, uh, you know, can't hold up the world, Gov. Uh, as if there really wasn't a choice in the matter. Uh, the Dutch Parliament has seen the similar uh, similar arrangements, both the frustration uh, and the protesting and the uh, uh, the sort of control through through key nodes. And in fact, the Dutch have actually brought in uh, COVID passports like most continental countries now um, for restaurants. And uh, I, I have tentatively asked around the, those who are, you know, have the, have the burden upon themselves as restaurateurs to check on that. And with a nod and a wink, they are letting it be known, particularly those uh, restaurants that are run by uh, ethnic non-Dutch uh, who have got uh, more of a you know can-do attitude to these things, that they won't be enforcing it. Even the mayor of Amsterdam, Felke Halsema, 
uh, although she's uh, you know very much a sort of an establishment uh, creature and centre left in some ways, has said that uh, in, in Amsterdam, the Netherlands' uh, biggest city, of course, she will not be instructing uh, police and, uh, and local authorities to enforce this. And the only way they can enforce it anyway uh, is by asking the uh, restaurant and other venue owners to show evidence that they want a QR code of people. Uh, there's no op there's no per permission in most Western countries that have implemented this to go up to individual diners or, or, or entrants and say, papers, please. There are ways around the system and people shouldn't realise who are watching in England, shouldn't think who are watching in England or any other COVID pass free countries for the time being. People shouldn't think that this is a complete tyranny. There are ways around it and people are learning to live as, live as dissidents. Uh, indeed. Um, so obviously last week, uh, the Scottish government uh, rolled out their uh, Scottish vaccine passport. Uh, not Didn't run out, roll out terribly well, of course, but uh, from, from Friday, uh, the, uh, the people are required to, from 5am on Friday, people attending large events, that's last Friday we're talking about, and nightclubs need to show proof, according to Sky News here, uh, using the app that they've had two doses of vaccine before they're allowed in. Uh, but unfortunately, the uh, rollout didn't go quite so smoothly and uh, it all came crashing down. I'm sure it's uh, working since. It was a bug, presumably. Some kind of bug, yes. Some sort of bug. Yes, but, yes. The, but the question is, Alex, where does this leave us uh, as a nation um, whenever we now have different law in Scotland and, and now in Wales? Uh, on this issue and other issues, uh, this is no longer a common law country. This was a point we made in our podcast series, A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution, very uh, all the way back in episode two, which uh, had its, its title, Common Law. You, the first point you made in that episode was just that, Mike. Uh, but it's, it's even more uh, insidious than that, because the deterrence is going to come within England. There are going to be rural areas or counties uh, that are effectively given US-style uh, powers to, to have the discretionary powers on this because uh, either at a sort of county level or if it's an urban area, metropolitan level, uh, mayors, as Martin Edwards has often written for us, are being given such powers. And of course, as soon as you implement this, uh, you get uh, the ability of the powers that be at UN agency level to talk straight to those what they call subnational governments. And I've just come back from Ukraine, as I think viewers will know. And uh, my host there was saying in the long uh, drive back to the, the airport at the end of it uh, that, uh, the, uh, that, that there is a lot of uh, pressure on uh, mayors now so that they're having to do a, an American style retreat to uh, finding area by area, oblast as they're called in Ukraine, uh, building up a core of, of politicians who are prepared to, as the English speaking world would put it, nullify. Uh, orders coming to, from the, the globalist government's uh, structures through to Kiev. And uh, I put it to him that the countries that haven't had uh, any such metropolitan mayor systems in the past are in a good position because there's very few ways to nobble people uh, other than that. So stay with the, uh, the local authorities that you have and watch them like hawks. But yes, uh, the, the result will be even with England, in, within England, people will think I'm not going to city X or county Y. Uh, because they have uh, those COVID passes there. People are being uh, induced to stay at home and fear the worst. Mm. Yeah, so once, once again, Alex, we're in our analysis takes us very quickly into the fact that what is happening in, in UK, this is not cock up. This is uh, a conspiracy against the uh, general public. This is orchestrated policy, which is designed to break down our own nation state and system of law. This can't be accidental. It's too complex. You see too many elements coming in through too, too many different directions for it to be accidental. This is a, a planned breakdown of the country, surely. 
Um, okay, well, look, uh, let's uh, quickly move on to this. And I'm just going to mention it in passing. Uh, this is from MSN. Unvaccinated relatives, uh, there is a high risk, or sorry, here are the risks around the Thanksgiving table. So uh, we've seen this uh, big campaign in the mainstream press over the last uh, several months to, to really, for people to demonize their friends that are unvaccinated and really unfriend them and not uh, go for beers with them or whatever it happens to be. Now we're going to break up families in the same way. I just wanted to highlight that this pretty despicable uh, report uh, in MSN. It's talking about Canada, but it, could, it really could be in any country. Uh, but let's, uh, uh, on my travels through Twitter this morning, uh, this was the, uh, the advice uh, on Twitter because apparently people are getting upset again about the uh, TED talk that uh, Bill Gates gave in 2010, uh, which was called Innovating to Zero, which is all about improving public health using vaccinations. Uh, and uh, people getting, uh, you know, suggesting that Bill Gates was talking about rolling out vaccinations internationally in order to help control population and, and uh, suggesting that uh, he recognized that vaccinations would uh, end up reducing the population. Uh, and so because this is uh, apparently doing the rounds in social media, again, Twitter felt that we needed to know uh, what it was that Bill Gates had said. But, but Twitch is an unreliable and dangerous company, surely. Oh no! Twitter's Twitter's a Twitter's a trusted source. So so, but anyway, it's not it's not from Twitter. This is Twitter amplifying other people. So it's Associated Press and Reuters in this case. So anyway, what are they saying? They're saying Gates was referring to the reduction of population growth, not the reduction of the population by ten or fifteen percent. Reports Reuters, the billionaire philanthropist has spoken about the benefits of slowing the rate of population growth, but he has not advocated killing people. Is that right, though? That's Associated Press said that. So let's. Uh, Let's look, continue on down here. Um, so they quote him, they say, first we've got population, he said, during the, TED, the talk organized by TED, a nonprofit organization devoted to spreading ideas. Uh, the world today has 6.8 billion people, he said. Uh, that's headed up to about 9 billion. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, healthcare, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15%. But here we see an increase of about 1.3, I presume that's percent. So that's Reuters quoting him. And then we've got Associated Press here. In past interviews, Gates has argued that improving vaccines and healthcare uh, can paradoxically slow the rate of population growth in poor countries because it lowers the child mortality rate with more children making it to adulthood. Gates has said uh, parents may choose to have smaller family sizes. So let's just think about this. So more children Reaching adulthood equals smaller family sizes. Well, is that really the case? So he's arguing that more humans reaching breeding age will result in lower population growth. Is that what he's saying? Well, what is he saying? I know this, what this I is, think he's saying. I, because Well, <laughs> this is it. So uh, so the only thing, it seems to me, the only thing that uh, is actually going to reduce population growth is higher living standards. So perhaps clean water, good food, uh, gainful employment, development. If we allow African countries, for example, to develop, perhaps that might do something to, if people are concerned about population growth, to reduce the growth in population there. Uh, but his talk was more about innovating to zero. That's what is entitled, innovating to zero. And of course, the, the, the latest rendition of that is the race to zero. And that's how we know it now. And this is based on the idea that Africa remains poor and undeveloped. So no, I'm not uh, buying, as we said, I'm not buying these, this fact-checker's uh, explanation of what Bill Gates meant. So let's just have a look at the International Energy Authority and their roadmap uh, for humanity globally. So no new investment in, in uh, new fossil fuel supply, including oil and gas, after 2021. 
Uh, no new sales of fossil fuel boilers after 2025. No new internal combustion engine car sales after 2035 globally. 60% of car sales are electric by 2030 and 50% of heavy truck sales are electric from 2035. These are the stated goals of the International Energy Authority. We're seeing these policies being implemented by national governments. Um, and uh, just to let you know what OPEC said in response, for many developing countries, the pathway to net zero without international assistance is not clear. Technical and financial support is needed to ensure deployment of key technologies and infrastructure. Fine. But the fact is that it's going to be hard enough for if, if this is the policy that they want to pursue, it's going to be hard enough, if not impossible, for developed countries to meet those targets, never mind developing countries. So what are the chances that developing countries are going to uh, meet those targets? They're as near to zero as makes no difference. And then we've got this, because in the race to zero, we are mining rare earths. We're mining cobalt, particularly cobalt and lithium. And, uh, you know, the, the situation in Africa over cobalt is absolutely obscene. Um, and so this uh, article here from uh, uh, Deseret News saying, are children dying like dogs in effort to build better batteries? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. It's disgraceful what's going on in Africa with, uh, with the cobalt mines and the lithium mines and so on. Let's bring back this uh, report from the Global Warming Policy Foundation, electrifying the UK and the want of engineering and remind you what this says, because it says that equivalent energy stored in conventional car filled with approximately 10 and a half gallons of gasoline, an EV needs a battery the weight of at least half a ton at present. Uh, that's not going to change massively in the, the immediate term. The production of those batteries is extremely energy intensive and includes mining and processing huge amounts of copper, aluminium and lithium and cobalt. So let's just look at what happens when we try to convert the UK car fleet as it stands we need 200% of the annual global production of cobalt, 75% of the annual global production of lithium carbonate, 50% more than of the annual global production of copper, and around 100% of the annual global production of neodymium. So uh, these products have to be mined. Where are they being mined from? Well, mostly Africa. Uh, and so, of course, we don't want Africa to develop because if we have Africa develop, they're going to want some they're of this stuff as well. They're going to want these materials. Of course yes. they are. And they're going to want to charge money for these materials. Uh, and uh, they're, they're not going to want their children to be dying down the cobalt mines. So, of course, we don't want to, uh, to see Africa develop. Uh, and in the meantime, of course, we're not just going to uh, electrify the car fleet and the truck fleet, but also air, the air fleet. And I mean, this, is, this uh, on face value is, is a... Uh, a, a milestone for Rolls-Royce is very good news in that sense. Their all-electric spirit of innovation takes to the skies. It's going to help the airline industry go electric, apparently. But of course, that puts more demand on these types of materials and therefore more demand on Africa, uh, but not for the Africans. Um, so uh, and where does that take us? Well, let's just understand the situation because The Economist has it here. Many people suggest that The Economist is a mouthpiece for the city of London. I think that's a fair comment. Uh, the age of fossil fuel abundance is dead, they say. Uh, and they're saying because of falling investment in oil wells, natural gas hubs, and coal mines, uh, the energy scarcity that we're seeing is going to get even worse uh, in this era of decarbonization. It's going to bring inflationary upheaval, but it may at least accelerate, they say, the shift to greener and cheaper sources of energy. Uh, and uh, and they blame inflation, therefore, on 
the climate rather than on, uh, on uh, bankers and speculation and so on. But Alex, the bottom line here is the question that we initially asked was, what was Bill Gates really saying when he was making those comments? And it seems to me, you, if you take Bill Gates's comments in the context of the wider policy and the fact that the, uh, the first world as it stands does not want to see Africa develop and has never wanted to see Africa develop because we've been mining the raw materials out from under their feet for decades, uh, hundreds of years maybe. Uh, that, that isn't going to change in the near future. And therefore, uh, since they are not going to get an, uh, to develop their economies, population growth pressures are going to remain unless there's some kind of medical intervention. Uh, so what was Bill Gates saying, do you think? I think at bottom he was saying, uh, allow me to speak on behalf of the Africans. Um, you covered Greta Thunberg last week and uh, off camera, Gevorg Viratz said to Brian after that broadcast, which was about similar issues, uh, that this is an abused young woman who needs to be treated uh, personally with kindness, even though what she's being given is a hideous script. And uh, who knows what Bill Gates uh, past harbours. But uh, in both cases, uh, it is, um, I, I think the phrase has become popular now, the white saviour complex. And they would be quick to deny it. Uh, but you know, uh, there is huge variety uh, intellectually among the, what is it now, billion and a half Africans and growing quickly. Are any of them uh, entitled to get on the world stage and say what they think is best for their countries, I wonder? I think the answer to that is probably no, along no. the lines that Mike's just taken us. Well, of course, if, if we look at Bill Gates, um, the agenda is that we, the population, should adhere to what Bill Gates advises and recommends. On what basis, we don't know, because he's uh, apparently a normal human being, although he's made a bit of money with computers, but we are to follow his advice. Well, let's jump across to this report that was, uh, or this uh, letter which was sent through to us. This is about a study being done called Horizons. Um, it's basically tied in with University College London. Uh, we'll give you more detail on it, but this is the uh, letter itself. And uh, if I just uh, call up that on my other screen here, we'll be able to give you a bit more detail. I'll just give you the first part. It says, Horizon Study Looking Beyond COVID-19. It was put out on the 20th of September 2021, and apparently various selected school children, or at least their parents, got this letter, and we'll give you more detail on that. It says, I'm writing to invite you to take part in the Horizons, an important new research study set up to understand how young people's lives have been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. The study will follow 12,000 young people who left year 11 in summer 2021, and also one of their parents or guardians. I very much hope that you can help us by completing our survey. The survey will take around 30 minutes to complete, and as a thank you for taking part, you will be immediately offered a £10 e-voucher. You can choose from a range of vouchers, including Amazon and Love to Shop, or we can add the amount to a PayPal account. And then there's, uh, there's a login system where you've got a number but let's just bring up this additional piece here so we can see it. Everything you, you tell us in the survey will be treated in the strictest confidence. Your data will be protest, uh, will sorry, be processed in accordance with the Data Protection Act. The privacy notice can be found on the Horizon Study website. And then there was an enclosed leaflet, which uh, we'll just bring up. This is it. Uh, 
and see what sort of things. Well, there's more about the study, important new research study. It's got the 12,000. And it says you'll be helping the government, teachers and education leaders to better understand how they can support young people affected by the pandemic in the years to come. So these people weren't standing up to help children during the pandemic, but they're very happy to be watching as almost the children of the little lab rats. And we're going to see uh, how they're getting on now. Who's carrying out the research? Well, this is the meat of it. So we got UCL, Sutton Trust, with um, support from the Department for Education, and they got funding coming in from the UK Research and Innovation and the Economic and Social Research Council. And uh, another piece here, uh, what you'll be asked about. Um, well, they're all questions related to the pandemic and associated lockdowns, how it's affected them, young people, how it might have affected their future education, training, job plans, their well-being, and then parents and guardians also being asked about um, their perspectives as perspectives on these topics. They'll also be asked about household details, such as their employment status and the impact of COVID-19 on family life. This is a very invasive study, Mike. It looks like it. Very invasive. In addition to the young person and parent guardian survey, a survey will be conducted on your school to collect general school-based questions about disruption during the pandemic. And we'll give you this one as well. How was I chosen? The names and addresses of young people were selected at random from the National Pupil Database, a database kept the Department of Education. The Horizons team have been given permission to use these details for the purpose of research. This research only for each young person selected to take part. We also invited one of their parents or guardians to participate. Parents and guardians have been invited because of their relationship to the selected young person. So how does this work, Mike, with data protection then? That we've got personal details about young children at school and their guardians, um, parents, and this has been made available to who? Well, how, how has this happened? Well, because there's really no data protection uh, left. left. Uh, and as we reported on Monday, there's going to be even less left uh, as a result of the consultation. So if you didn't see Monday's programme and you want to uh, have a look at the uh, information about uh, data protection consultation that's going on at the moment, then please do and get involved in that. Yeah. So let's uh, just recap that so we can see this a bit more clearly. Here's UCL running the Horizons uh, project. They're working with the Sutton Trust. They're using... Uh, this com company, Kandar, which is doing the sort of front-end public relations and the brochures. And then the money's coming in from these two sources, the UK Research Innovation and also the Economic and Social Research Council. So here's Sutton Trust. And I'm going to really encourage our viewers and listeners to go and look at this website and start asking, who are these people? Well, we can put a few people up on screen. But if you look at their background, they say that they're very good people. They've got all the right intentions. They're all philo um, philanthropists. Yes. I went both ways with yeah. that one. So they've got our best interests at heart. They've got the best interests of our children at heart. But when you look at them, they're an amazing mix of uh, bankers, hedge fund people, money people, academics, and what do we really know about these people and what they're doing and why they're doing this? Why are they so interested to know about our children? It's an interesting logo. 
It's a very interesting, some, what a suggestion is the wiggly bit looks remarkably like a snake. I don't know whether that's true or not. But my question is, should we just accept these people at face value and allow them access to our children and their data? Or should we be starting to say, who are these people? And my take is, if, if, if we've got Bill Gates coming along and declaring that he is forming policy, which we should follow, are these people forming policy that apparently we should follow? Who are they and what gives them the right to look at data? Well, I was fascinated to find that, surprise, surprise, the EU has been running a very big and expensive uh, program, uh, which is about hoovering up data. Horizon 2020 is the financial instrument implementing the Innovation Union, a Europe 2020 flagship initiative uh, about economic growth and creating jobs. And when you get into the blurb on this, of course, you will see that this program is sucking up data. So my question is, is this survey of children, is this actually part of a wider EU survey? I personally think it is. But in any case, why are we allowing individuals who we really know nothing about to collect data on our children? Alex. Alex. There is a Yorkshire proverb, where there's muck, there's brass. And uh, Tony in our live chat has just echoed Brian's lifelong learning of the, the issue by paraphrasing that as where there's children, there's loads of money. Uh, all of those who are sniffing around uh, where children and data are concerned are doing so, just like Mr. Gates with regard to vaccines, because they have said, uh, as Mr. Gates has in other uh, occasions, that there, there is a return on that investment. Uh, viewers who are new to this or uh, upon whom the full horror of this data and children network are still, uh, is, is still dawning, uh, I would advise them to go and look out an extremely good American lady named Alison McDowell, who gives extremely uh, good fact-filled uh, briefings to parents and educators across the United States and further afield, and draws the links to very unsavory institutions like Unit 8200, Israel's Signal Intelligence Agency. Um, and th there is a clear agenda to invest in children, to make them an asset class and track them through life. That's what's going on. If you're wondering how on earth there's a remedy for such a dark agenda, then people might be surprised to hear me make this leap. But I would uh, suggest that they go to ukcolumn.org and look halfway down the homepage now for a new uh, podcast, which I have just put together with Gevor Virats, last week's guest, in which he's describing how the Celtic nations have clung on so, uh, uh, so uh, strongly. Uh, for many centuries, while people have been interested in filling their children's heads with other agendas and turning them into globalists. And uh, he says that you start by teaching your children the right things and making sure that the, the opponents don't get a foothold to teach them the wrong ideas and the wrong worldviews. So uh, start there, learn from our own past and make sure that your children's uh, minds are not filled by those who regard them as an investment. Thank you, Alex. Can I just add that I did call uh, a number which Horizons had put up to call if you had any questions about the programme, but you simply got a recorded message. It asked you to key in the uh, code which people had been given in the letter in order to um, engage with the survey. Uh, I, of course, did not have a code, but I couldn't speak to a human being. So we've yet to talk to Horizons or UCL Direct, but we're going to try and do that. Um, okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Uh, and uh, also please share our material 
on the various platforms uh, on screen at the moment. Uh, and once again, thank you very much to uh, the, the everyone who's bought a hoodie from the uh, UK Column shop. Uh, now, in the on the uh, description for the hoodies, it does say very clearly that uh, these won't be in stock until the first of uh, of no uh, November, I believe. Uh, but I'm delighted to say that the first batch came in today, so they're starting to go out uh, immediately. And uh, so, so we could only just make it into the studio due to the hoodie supply arrival. Yes, uh, a, a large number of boxes arrived indeed. Uh, and uh, a reminder that uh, on Sunday uh, we'll be uh, hosting uh, Pierce Robinson's uh, propaganda and the 9-11 Global War on Terror virtual symposium. Uh, and uh, he and a, a, a number of other speakers are going to be covering particularly the propaganda aspect uh, that took place uh, around 9-11 and, and post 9-11 that took us into Afghanistan uh, and Iraq and, uh, and other things. So that is going to be a hugely interesting afternoon. Begins at 1 p.m. It'll be uh, streamed live on ukcolumn.org slash live as usual. And also uh, in our chat box, if, if uh, members want to watch it, it'll be there as well. Where does that take us? Um, I think we're into uh, part of Alex's uh, Yes, here. Richard so Fitzwilliams. Alex. Richard Fitzwilliams is a longtime and distinguished commentator on the benefits and uh, intended role of monarchy, and not just with regards to the British monarchy either, but uh, he speaks up in defence of uh, continental monarchies. And of course, he's, uh, his main career is as a theatre and film critic. So he's a, a culturally very broadly informed gentleman. Uh, but one of our stalwart viewers wrote a polite and pointed email to uh, Mr. Fitzwilliams arising from a recent television opportunity that Mr. Fitzwilliams has appeared, I believe, over a thousand times as a commentator on uh, mainly US television regarding monarchical issues. So here's what our viewer had to say. Now, pay close attention because this is a masterclass in what's happened to the monarchy, as I hinted earlier. He writes, Dear Mr. Fitzwilliams, I was very interested in your remarks as a pro-royal commentator appearing versus Ken Livingston, Republican, on the Dan Wooten programme this evening. As a monarchist, I too feel that the Prince's trust and the other charitable work of the royal family is superb. Where I think we may seriously differ is your apparent objection to the monarch having a political role. If you take that position, this means that you do not believe the sovereign should play any personal role as the third part of the separation of powers in the legislative process on behalf of the people. That since 1854 and the reign of Queen Victoria, no monarch has personally assented to any legislation, rendering any law since then invalid? Question mark. That the solemn coronation oath taken at every new coronation is meaningless, empty pageantry, because the new sovereign's oath or promise to the people to, quote, govern according to our respective laws and customs, quote, cannot be executed because the sovereign is not allowed by the political party system to be part of the executive process, as demonstrated above. And a, a side note from me, Alex, that Seneth goings on was a, a clear breach of the monarch's duty to the people because the, uh, the monarchy has been completely removed uh, from that, that system in devolution. Uh, the viewer continues to write to Mr. Fitzwilliams, in that, so here's the nuts and bolts of what's gone wrong, a committee from the House of Lords, sometimes called the Queen's Cousins, actually perform the royal assent, even though the Queen may personally give her signature. That the sovereign, the, the that's are because uh, Mr. Fitzwilliams is being told here, if you say the monarch is not in politics, then these, this is what follows that you agree with. That the sovereign is made subordinate to the party political process 
on the grounds that party politicians are supposedly elected by the people, not the sovereign. That despite the people's ancient common law right to petition the crown to redress a grievance, this is also empty pageantry. Our viewer goes on, I say this because I was one of the people who, in 1972, in all weathers, gathered half a million signatures requesting the Queen not to assent to the Heath legislation to take us into the European Economic Community. It had no effect. We now know why. That we are, in fact, in effect, according to Bajo, that's Walter Bajo, who wrote the English Constitution in 1861, we are a republic, and Ken Livingstone need not bother espousing republicanism. In Ben Green's booklet, The British Constitution and the Corruption of Parliament, page 38, for more information, go to the UK Column podcast series, um, A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution, and it's episode 5.2, where we pick this apart. We read, says our viewer, that Bajho was quite open in how the British people were to be deprived of their great constitutional heritage. When he declared that, long important quote follows, the appendages of the monarchy, think cabinet office today, have been converted into the essence of a republic, only here, because of a more numerous, heterogeneous political population, so he's hinting that you can't do to the English even the things you can get away with in Wales because of their traditions and their density, it is needful to keep the ancient show while we secretly interpolate, which means stick in between, the new reality. The viewer concludes, as you know, the late Lord Hailsham famously described our new reality system of government, which poses as democracy, as, quote, elective dictatorship. This simply means we are forced to elect one or other of the manifesto packages which the parties present to us, or not vote at all. It is simply a question of which variation of, of the dictatorship you prefer. He adds, the real constitution is denied. As Lord Hailsham also wrote in 1970, quote, it is the parliamentary majority which has the potential for tyranny, because, of course, especially in the Westminster model, courts cannot go against uh, the uh, parliament. At least judges can't, but juries can. And Hailsham goes on to describe how the commons, once the protector of liberty, has become, think Senate again, an agency of government, administering government policy down to the people. And I think we all agree that's what we find when people talk about their members of parliament or local assemblies now. They think that, that they're, they're talking to the government, which of course is a, a fatal mistake. But we now understand why, because people innately understand that that is the switch that has been performed. The viewer goes on, all this is done by the party system, which its supporters brazenly declare is about centralizing power. And they do if you read the, the books that argue for parties. And being the, quote, permanent revolution against our constitution, note that this was 19th century and had nothing to do with Jews or Germans or Soviets, it happened in Britain, cancels our ancient constitution. For example, in order to separate the powers, a clause in the Act of Settlement 1701 forbids a member of parliament from also being a minister. The parties ignore it, as you know given that there has just been a shuffle in the cabinet and MPs are shunted around. I think this is the last bit of the email. So, Mr Fitzwilliams, may I ask, how can you seriously stand up for the monarchy and our right to be free when you said nothing about all this and all you can offer is splendid charity workers as the monarchy's reason to exist? I grant you that may be the easiest to sell, but it does not liberate us from the tyranny. Well done, viewer. Uh, please internalise this, especially if you're watching from within, as they say, the hallowed precincts of the Palace of Westminster, 
as a staff member or an MP and realise just what has been done here with the monarchy being taken out of the equation. Because if the monarchy is appointing ministers, that's your protection, you lawful members of parliament or those who would do the right thing, because the monarchy has got the clout. With the monarchy removed, of course, it's the parties that hold the whip hand. Um, Alex, as, as I see it, of course, uh, it's not quite the case that we are a republic because we're we're not really a republic either. So, so it's a kind of uh, mishmash of the two of the two systems, and and of course, you end up with something that has no prospect of ever working. It is therefore working for the benefit of uh, certain uh, interests, and it is a dictatorship. Therefore. This creative ambiguity in those late 19th century constitutional writers, Walter Bajo and then Albert Van Dicey in the 1880s, was positively welcomed. Uh, they both spoke about, or one of them spoke about the, um, in these terms, about the efficient parts, which means the working parts in 19th century language. The working parts of the government are there behind the scenes like a dirty, oily engine room. And what you see is the graceful above the water glide of the swan. And that's what the queen is wheeled out for. Uh, but this, of course, is a complete uh, subversion and it's intentional. Uh, the, the, the monarchies on the continent, Benelux, Scandinavia, Spain, uh, are monarchies because their people wanted the pageantry and perhaps to some extent they, these are some of the countries with better constitutional awareness on the continent. But even there, uh, you've got the same business. Over here in the Netherlands, for example, uh, the king is not crowned. The crown is kept on the table when he is invested rather than crowned. And uh, he has to swear an oath, and I'm deliberately paraphrasing here, to obey the government of the day as he presides over them. I know that that's not the exact wording. It's, it's dressed up in terms of, I will be a constitutional monarch. But he, it's been very, made very, very clear to him by Dutch MPs that he's there to do their bidding. And they even have that included in the pageantry of the opening of parliament now. So that's what's happened here. And, uh, you know, we, we have a de facto republic, but think uh, stinky old corrupt republic. Don't think of noble early American republic. Think more of the Venetian oligarchic republic. Indeed. The only bit I would, I would just add, Alex, is, of course, that people were responding by basically saying, yes, but the monarchy, uh, the monarchy is a rubbish system. And I think we've got to uh, we've got to add some careful thought is needed between the actual system itself and the people occupying the system. Is the problem the system of monarchy or is the problem the quality of the people that we have in Britain occupying the positions of royalty at the moment? And I would suggest it's the latter. I would totally agree. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. What, uh, there's so many proverbs in English about this, better the devil you know than the devil you don't, or to put it in, in uh, posh Aristotelian terms, you know, uh, uh, anarchy is even worse than tyranny. And in the early days of Republic, uh, as the, both the Germans and Russians found after the First World War, uh, what you get is more uh, mayhem and people coming to power as education commissars who take delight in sexualizing your children. These things happen when the monarchy loses its grip. So even a decrepit old monarchy is better than what follows if, if what you've had before is a monarchy. Um, okay, now uh, we mentioned this on Extra, I think on Monday, uh, but I just wanted to highlight uh, this situation with Bob Moran, the uh, Telegraph's uh, uh, cartoonist. Now, he's produced some uh, good stuff in the last uh, 18 months. Here's uh, one uh, where uh, Boris is holding a sign that says don't, but it's so small you can't read it. And basically the main word there is panic. Uh, and we've got uh, we've got more from him. He's constantly taken uh, an anti-lockdown position uh, and uh, very critical of uh, of the way the government, the kinds of policies that the government has pushed through. 
in the uh, in the last eighteen months or so. Uh, now, unfortunately, uh, he decided that he needed to comment uh, about a lady called uh, Rachel Clark, uh, who is uh, uh, a doctor, author, journalist, is how she calls it, with uh, two hundred fifty thousand followers on Twitter. Uh, she's been promoting over the last last eighteen months government policies on COVID nineteen, endorsing lockdowns, uh, promoting vaccines for teenagers without parental consent advocating for mask wearing and so on. And uh, well, unfortunately, Bob's uh, patience finally ran out uh, a few weeks ago and he posted uh, this tweet to her. Why do you employ a woman or he posted this tweet? Why do you employ a woman who promotes disgusting ideologies without moral or scientific justification, which leads to the deaths of children at NHS England? Uh, this is pure unspeakable evil and you appear to condone it. Uh, Rachel Clark didn't like that very much. Uh, unfortunately, he did uh, make a further tweet, which has been deleted by Twitter uh, since the, you know, as part of this uh, this particular uh, intervention, uh, where he was suggesting that uh, maybe she needs a bit of uh, verbal abuse. So it it was a bit uh, unfortunate that he uh, lost his patience in this way. But nonetheless, he was immediately suspended uh, by the Telegraph, uh, according to uh, Press Gazette, uh, and uh, is apparently. Uh, going to have to go through some kind of disciplinary uh, procedure in the not too distant future. Um, well, I just wanted to highlight that this has uh, gone on. Um, the British Medical Association at on the at the end of September said following the abuse of Dr. at Dr. Underscore Oxford Oxford yesterday, pleased to see that the Telegraph appears to have taken immediate and decisive action. This should serve as a warning that targeted targeting abuse at NHS workers doing their jobs uh, should not and will not be tolerated. Well, the question is just how much uh, abuse was it? And really the question is, is it, are we at the point where we cannot uh, criticize anybody for taking any position uh, publicly for fear of effectively being vilified for it? And and the vilification uh, has, has gone well beyond this. Now, just before I get comment from you both, I just wanted to uh, make this point that this, issue with Bob Moran has been going on for months. So Bill Gardner is another Telegraph journalist here, uh, and he said uh, uh, there's uh, a sensible debate on lockdown, and then there's this uh, referencing a Bob's cartoons uh, uh, tweet. Uh, and Bob Moran made the point, well, when did the uh, sensible debate happen? I must have missed it. Was there a televised argument with Dr. John Lee and Dr. Michael Yeadon pitting, pitted against Witty and Valance? Can anyone tell me who won? And this is really the point, of course, the Telegraph <clears throat> attempts to claim, because here's uh, Bill Gardner again, perhaps you don't read the Telegraph, plenty of sensibly held views there from both sides uh, and journalists reporting the facts rather than inciting people to break the law. Uh, but Alex, if you look at the, the commentary of the Telegraph over the, 18, over the last 18 months, okay, they've been taking a stand on cancel culture and so on, but really the mainstream media in general have been taking the position where it's an argument over what, how extreme the lockdown measure should have been and when the lockdown measure should have been imposed and so on. There's no actual uh, serious discussion about uh, the standard of the, the data that's available to us, about the actual effect that uh, coronavirus has allegedly had on people and, and who has been affected by it and what are the true levels of death and so on. There's no actual uh, counter narrative to the official government narrative. It's just a question of which version of the government government narrative you want. So while it's unfortunate that Bob uh, Moran has uh, spoke out in the way that he did, it's it's understandable actually.
This is what you get when you deny uh, the opportunity in the mainstream press, the old media, as Brian aptly calls them, to have proper debates. And there's actually three reasons why we don't have those debates. Uh, one which is receding, I think, from importance is the press barons say, I'm not having that in the titles I own. One which is increasingly important is advertisers uh, say or imply or, or let it be worked out in the editorial office for themselves that if this is uh, such and such is, is covered, then the pharmaceuticals and others will withdraw their advertising revenue. And the third, of course, is that if you're in a system such as Ofcom for broadcast media in the United Kingdom, which UK, UK column, of course, isn't, uh, hence the, our worry about the online harms bill and so on, uh, Ofcom will say, and we've heard BBC journalists say this on air, I have to close you down because Ofcom requires us to embed any such commentary in context. In other words, to rubbish it, even as you say it. I think the chat box has nailed it again. Um, our viewer here says that Rachel Clark is nothing more than another feminist activist who sees a graduation from medical school as a means to climb the greasy pole. Now, some people might think that's uh, sharp and uncalled for, but they might not be aware that the, uh, the, the, the sisters who founded and gave their name to the Fawcett Society in the late 19th century, when feminism was all the rage, uh, had a famous episode when they were sitting in the boudoir together and uh, the sisters all assigned each other roles to bring on the intersectional revolution, as it's now called it. This was the first generation of that thinking. And they said, well, we're going to go into these various professions and say, you can't abuse me, I'm a woman. Let me bring revolution to you. And one of the sisters was told, and you must go into medical school because you will be uh, the, the feminist uh, who's, uh, who's posing as a doctor. I'm afraid there is a lot of that that goes on. And this is the sharp end of what Brian warns about increasingly when he talks about intersectionality. It's Marxism. Marxism in disguise. <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry, I'm just uh, choking to death here. <coughs> Excuse me. No. Of course, Rachel Clark herself uh, pushed this out um, on the uh, 3rd of October. Uh, Joria Holiday, Holiday 15, was a loving girl, uh, talented kickboxer and aspiring musician. She's in, she was entirely healthy. Uh, Joria died uh, of COVID myocarditis on the very day she was due to receive her vaccination. Absolutely heartbreaking, and indeed it is. I'm not saying it isn't. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I personally know a a uh, young lady who's 16 in Plymouth at the moment, uh, who has just come out of hospital, uh, having spent some time in hospital, uh, not expected to survive as a result of a COVID vaccination, who's currently in a wheelchair. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, there is a discussion to be had, which is not being had. And for, um, you know, I'll say it again, uh, while Bob Moran's intervention was perhaps not the, the best way strong, to do things, I think it was strong. Yeah. Uh, it, it was understandable, and uh, it's time we started having a proper discussion about what uh, is really going on in this country, and globally, in fact. Right, where does that take us? Well, let's have a change of uh, subject. Uh, a little bit sad, this one. I, I picked up on uh, the Times article, Tuesday, October the 5th, about um, uh, Major General Matthew Holmes had committed suicide. So this was the Times Headline, Marines Chief Matthew Holmes struggled over Afghanistan before suicide. Uh, what I'm going to do very quickly is just go through this article. And really, we're asking some questions that I don't think the uh, press are picking up. But the first thing I noticed is that um, the Times is supposedly a newspaper of record. It's supposed to be one of the most outstanding newspapers in UK. Um, but here they they drop the royal. So 
to call a Royal Marine a Marine is a gross insult, and it's a gross insult to the Royal Marines. And I just found it remarkable that the Times, as a newspaper of record, would make this kind of mistake. Maybe it was deliberate, I don't know. Um, but uh, we've also got the article in the Mail. Former head of the Royal Marines was struggling to cope with Britain's withdrawal from Afghanistan in weeks before suicide. Uh, he was found dead on Saturday. Uh, he took his own life after splitting with his wife and losing his military job. Friend has said he was struggling. Uh, Holmes was friends with Prince Harry, carried Prince Philip's coffin and was awarded the Distinguished Service Order for his service in Afghanistan. So if we just look at some of these comments here, um, this, this one really caught my eye. The former head of the Royal Marines had talked to colleagues about how he was struggling to cope with a withdrawal from Afghanistan in the weeks before he committed suicide. And in my mind, I thought, what was he actually talking about? Why was he struggling with the withdrawal from Afghanistan? Uh, went on to say, say that he was found dead and he had broken up with his wife. And obviously that would have put a lot of uh, pressure on, but also we're told he lost his job as Commandant General of the Royal Marines, the professional head of the force. Um, so this comment here on Tuesday, one of Holmes' friends told the Times that he had raised concerns, that he, uh, Holmes had raised concerns that all the sacrifice and all that service might have been in vain because we had to get out of Afghanistan in the aftermath of Britain's withdrawal from the country. So um, clearly he was seeing things, very serious things going on in uh, Afghanistan, and he wasn't too keen about it. It went on, it said it affected a lot of people, him in particular, the friend told the newspaper. You're talking about commanders who sent people into harm's way. It's a really bad time to have all these problems accu accumulating. Well, this is getting down to the meat of it because British servicemen and women died in Afghanistan, along with American colleagues and other NATO countries, but essentially real people dying, injured, injured for life, and senior military people were taking the responsibility of pushing through the mission. And then suddenly we know that the ground was cut out from under their, their feet. So this was uh, another one of the comments in the Mail article. The poor guy was not coping with leaving the service and he had a very complicated private life. Any bloke would have crumbled under these multiple pressures, the friend added. Well, this surprises me a bit because this was obviously a very tough man, head of the Royal Marines, uh, been through a lot. And we are to believe that suddenly he's got issues that he can't really deal with. Um, so I'm going to ask the question, was this simply a stressed, unhappy man with family problems who couldn't who couldn't cope. Let's see what the government has to say about it. Well, we bring in Leo Doherty, the Minister of Defence, People and Veterans, and he says in the article that all troops would in future undergo yearly mandatory mental health checks to make sure they're coping with service life. So there's no comment about the suicide itself or the circumstances, but don't worry, trust the government, we're going to look after you, we're going to bring in mental health checks. And I get a very um, I get a very nasty little feeling about what's going on here. Who's coming in to check the mental health of the troops and why are they doing it? Alex, with an eye on the clock. Just to say that with remarkable coordinated timing, the United States has announced also that there will be mandatory annual mental health checks, at least for the US Army and I believe also for the, for the US Marines. Okay, thank you for that. Well, of course, this brings us to the question then,
who decides if somebody is well? Is that a healthy person? Is that the person themselves? Or do we all now have to qualify or be qualified by some uh, psychiatrist that we are indeed mentally healthy? I'll just leave people to think of that. Uh, but we take it on, speaking at a forces in mind fringe. I had to add group because the mail had left that out during the Tory party conference in Manchester. Doherty likened the checks to an annual MOT that will form part of the government's efforts to emphasize the importance of well-being of the troops. I don't get a feeling about well-being for the troops here. I get the feeling what's being implemented is something extremely dark and sinister. And I'm going to try and explain a little bit of it to the audience. Um, so let's bring back the gentleman in question and uh, we just make some comments. He was found dead there. He'd split from his wife and he'd lost his job. But in 2007, he'd been awarded the Distinguished Service Order for his leadership on the front line of Afghanistan. And he'd been removed from the position of Commandant General early in April, which was just 20 months into a three-year posting. So somebody really went for this man because he, he was, he'd just got his feet under the table, as it were, in the job. He was doing an extremely difficult job and suddenly he sacked. And then we've got this one. Speaking to the Daily Telegraph, a defense source said that the decision to replace him was made due to the restructuring of the Royal Navy, but added that Major General Holmes was upset by his removal. So we've got three things there. We've got what's happening to him in person. We've got the fact he was sacked, but now he was also warning not only about Afghanistan and leaving Afghanistan, but restructuring of the Royal Navy. So a question really is, is um, if, if the fact that he was warning about the sacrifice and the service and, and the fact that out of nowhere we had to get out of Afghanistan, I'm going to ask the question, did he upset the Tory government and political establishment by warning the British troops and the people of Afghanistan were being betrayed? And is that why he lost his job? Is this where the pressure comes from on this man that he was speaking out? Well, of course, we know that uh, the decision to get out of Afghanistan was made very quickly. Here's the Guardian saying uh, this is June, I think, if I can just see it. Uh, they're July. saying July. Um, so they were saying, well, the decision to leave it was those nasty Americans. We didn't know anything about it. We've got to get out because the Americans are going. I would have liked to have heard what General Holmes was actually warning about, because I think the public should have known. Um, so he was found dead. Um, but here, there's something very interesting. Under the picture, it says this. Major General Matthew Holmes' family said he had no work lined up for his new life in the civilian world. And I found this really incredible, because the system is in the military that when you leave the, the uh military great efforts are made to get you into another job. And if you're a senior officer, the old boy network is truly astonishing. So I'm going to say, was Major General Matthew Holmes deliberately blocked from that senior officer's old boy network, which would have given him a lucrative commercial position because he blew the whistle on Afghanistan and the demise of the Royal Marines. And what am I talking about there? Well, here's Wales online. Uh, warning a little while ago that the Royal Marines effectively were to be completely changed and forming a crack, what they called a crack new commando unit in an armed forces shakeup. 
So they're to be transformed into a new, quote, future commando force to be deployed around the world on an enduring basis in a major overhaul of the armed forces. But we can't even cope with Afghanistan, Mike. So how are we going to reframe the, the Royal Marines in order that they're deployed around the world on a perpetual basis? This sounds like madness. And perhaps the general was warning about this. The Ministry of Defence said the new force would take on many of the traditional tasks, the special forces, the SAS and SBS, alongside a, quote, new army ranger regiment. Well, this is American military language because the American army operates the ranger systems. So I think this man was trying to warn us of something. But uh, just to end the segment, uh, about 10 years ago, some very strange information started to come into the UK column. Um, we got information from a number of young soldiers and some young Royal Marines. Um, some had been suffering from PTSD. They'd had counselling sessions with psychiatrists. And they told us that the psychiatrists had told them they should commit suicide. This didn't come from one or two individuals. It came from several of them. They were from different army regiments. They were from different parts of the country. And they did not know each other. Uh, we also know that on return from Afghanistan, some fit, healthy young Royal Marines were ordered to take psychotropic medication to supposedly act as a prophylactic for PTSD, which they did not have. Uh, the Royal Marines stated that some colleagues were being made mentally unwell by the medication. And if we continue, we were told about a flight returning from Afghanistan with some fit, healthy young Royal Marines who were being transported with a number of colleagues with minor wounds and injuries, all were in good spirits, chatting, laughing and joking for much of the trip. But several weeks later, the fit Royal Marines were shocked to meet up with some of those on the flight who had just had the minor wounds and injuries. They described the men as being in a dreadful, unrecognisable state, drowsy, mentally confused, depressed and clearly unwell. And... Uh, one young Royal Marine who'd been injured overseas complained that the lack of treatment he'd received for serious physical injuries at a special military medical centre. He was moved. He was taken off the ward. He was moved to another floor and stayed for several days alone as the only patient in an empty ward. And the, the, the what are we saying here? We're saying that this man was punished for speaking out. So we will just say that we've seen a lot of very strange things about the treatment of mental health for service people. Um, so just remind you, Leo Doherty here, what exactly is he planning and should we trust it? And I don't think we should. And I also wanted to bring up this picture, I think appropriate because we've covered the monarchy or Alex, you have in your earlier section. So there was a big picture of uh, Major General Matthew Holmes welcoming Prince Harry, the former Captain General of the Royal Marines and Meghan Markle to the Royal Albert Hall in London. But at that stage, Harry had already betrayed the nation, that's my words, and the Royal Marines because he'd already announced in January that he was going to abandon UK and leave the country. So I wonder why he was still in uniform in that picture and I'll leave people to think about those issues. Um, yes, was there anything, we're out of time, but was there anything in particular on the rest of that that you wanted to Well, right I, I would simply say, um, talking some very difficult issues there, but of course, if you're a, an armed forces veteran and you know what we're talking about and you have any, any information about the 
treatment or failures of uh, supporting veterans with PTSD or mental health, we'd be very interested in hearing from you. Um, okay, well, uh, we've just been mentioning Prince Harry. Uh, we just thought we would end uh, with with this. Now we had the Patrick ran the competition a couple of weeks ago on the Time, the Time uh, magazine front page. Um, well, apparently somebody else has uh, drawn a parallel, uh, and uh, so everybody that's uh, in the UK undoubtedly will recognise uh, that parallel. Um, some people overseas may not, uh, but uh, well, we've got uh, Rick and Neil from. Uh, the young ones there, which yeah. seems like uh, Alex, uh, quite a quite an interesting uh, or an accurate representation. Yes, for those who are too young to remember, this was a, a long time um, sitcom on BBC, taking the rip out of the uh, alternative grungy students of the eighties and how they would mope around in long hair and look outrageous and and sound a lot. You know, their bark was worse than their bite. They didn't have any life experience. Was the point of the show, but they were oh so wise and they'd swallowed their cultural Marxism and knew that the system needed to be overthrown. And uh, unfortunately, that has trickled all the way up now to. Uh, I suppose we'd better say Meg and Harry, hadn't we? Because that's the, that's clearly the way round that we should think of them. Yeah, and uh, by the way, I got that completely wrong. It's Vivian and Neil, of course. Uh, uh, sorry, I, I do apologise for that. I've long time since I've seen it, but anyway, there you go. Okay, I think think we're there, Alex. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to all our viewers and listeners. Uh, thank you to all the UK Column subscribers and supporters. Uh, Mugs has been mentioned, and I'm just going to mention it on the news. Yes, there's. There's some action happening on the mug, yeah, mug yeah, scene, be, so yes. yeah. please be patient. And uh, I'd just like to emphasize again that you, if you're understanding now how the breakdown in UK is orchestrated, there's no question of this, uh, then what have we got to do? We've got to warn other people, but we've also got to take individual action. However small, something every day is the way to counter what's happening. That's it. Thanks for joining us. And we'll be back on the live stream for a bit of extra in a second if you're on the UK Column website. Otherwise, see you 1pm on Friday as usual. That's it. Bye-bye.